Dostoevsky, the Russian 19th century philosopher and great author, uh, early in his life, he was belonging to a group that got arrested and judged for uh, treason against Tsar Nicholas I. He was sentenced to death, along with the rest. And in the midst of this, and, and about he was about to be executed, they dressed him all in white. They led him to a public square where the firing squad had waited them. They blindfolded them, bound them, tied them to the post. And then the order was given, and the rifles clicked. And the shout-out was, ready, aim. And then in the distance, they heard a horse galloping. And then a soldier yelled out, Nicholas would mercifully commute their sentences to hard labor. And they were unbound and put on a train. Now, this was a cruel public charade to deter people from rising up against Nicholas and to show how great and merciful and his incredible benevolence to his people. Dostoevsky never really recovered from this experience. He was in the jaws of death. And from that moment, for him, what became precious beyond all things, calculation says, now my life will change. I shall be born again in a new form. He didn't know what that meant. As he boarded the train towards Siberia, a devout woman gave him a New Testament, the only book that was allowed in those prisons. Dostoevsky poured over the New Testament during his confinement at 10 years And he emerged from the exile with an unshakable Christian conviction. And this is what he said after those 10 years. If anyone proved to me that Christ was outside the truth, then I would prefer to remain with Christ than with the truth. The point is is not to say Christ is not true. The point is to say he fell so in love with the the, the beauty, the loveliness, that Christ was so precious to him. He treasured Christ so much. It did not matter that this was the lovely thing. This was the precious thing. Christ was it. Now, it's a false dichotomy because what is lovely, what is precious is true. And Christ is true. But the point is the overemphasis of this, that, that Christ was his greatest treasure. That Christ is the greatest treasure. You see, the Tsar Nicholas, he gave a false new life to Dostoevsky. He gave less than the resurrection from the firing squad. He gave less than mercy from death to hard labor. Jesus, the author and the Lord of life, he has the authority to actually give new life. To actually give life. He has the the authority to speak resurrection into our life. He has the authority to bring dead things back to life. His mercy is not a commutation of the death penalty. His mercy is not a commutation of judgment, but it's from judgment to eternal life. Not to just hard labor. It's a, it's a, a mercy that gives us abundant life. That's the mercy and grace and the authority of Jesus. This Jesus proves that he is the treasure, that he is lovely, and that he is precious. He is the one worth holding on to. I want to give you the the context, this remind you of the context of the passage that we read this morning. Right? Jesus had just healed or proclaimed, right? 
to heal. The lame, right? He said it, and the guy stood up. The lame man took up his mat and walked away. And now he's confronted. He's persecuted by the Pharisees in the temple. He is in the temple when he says all of these things to the Pharisees and to the public. He's in the place where people go to gather or to celebrate and to come in connection and relationship with God to offer their sacrifices and prayers. This is where Jesus is when he says all of these things. I just want you to understand, Jesus, they were persecuting Jesus because he told a person to pick up their mat on the Sabbath day. And yet these same people that were upset with that were willing to persecute and seek to kill him on the Sabbath. Someone's view of the law is messed up here. In John 5, 17, let's hear it again. But Jesus answered, my father is working until now, and I am working. Right? The whole, this whole passage is a father-son connection. What the father works, then the son works. What the father does, then the son does. And, and we, we learned two weeks ago, right, we, the emphasis that, that rest, that Sabbath keeping wasn't the cessation of work, wasn't the stopping of work, but the reprioritizing of what our actual work is. That we are to be in relationship and working in the work of Jesus. What the father does is what the son does is what we ought to do as well. And we're just saying that God is always active. God is always active, right? And that doesn't mean he's, he's laboring. It's not meaning that it's, it's toilsome. There's rest in that work. God is always sovereign. All things exist in every moment because he wills it to exist in that moment. And that is restful work for him. Sabbath is reserved for restful work not the cessation of work. Our rest is always in Jesus, and we can get that through Monday through Sunday. Every day we can find rest. And Jesus goes on to explain and expound what his restful Sabbath life-giving work is, the work that is in opposition to the Sabbath-breaking, death-seeking work of the Pharisees and the rest of us humans. I want to stop for a moment. I, I debated whether talking about this or not, but I want to talk a little bit about the Trinity because anytime you talk about the Trinity, man, you can get some dangerous ground. But I want to really talk about, there's a couple ways that we can look at the Trinity. I know the Trinity is a hard thing. My personality is I like to know things, and man, the Trinity is hard to know, so it, it, it disrupts me because it's hard to know. But I want you to understand the Trinity in this, right? God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, right? We can talk about the Trinity in an ontological way. Ontological way is a big word, but you could do some heavy lifting this morning, right? Ont ontology means the study of being. So when I say the ontological trinity of God, the being of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit, that's one way of looking at the trinity. Another way of looking at the trinity is the economic trinity of God. And so economic, we really think of finances, but literally the word economic means household management. How does it actually function? How does the triune God actually function. Now, I want to be really careful here. So I'm going to be very careful in how we say how the, the triune God functions because we don't want to overspeak what Scripture says. I'm going to be very narrow in how I speak and how God works, the triune God works in this particular way, in this moment, and this is how he does it, right? And so I say that because I'm going to use the word subordination, right? And so 
subordination is, is limited into this particular understanding. That the, father, that the son is not eternally subordinate to God because they are one being. So what I want to talk about, how the, the, the Trinity functions ontologically, father, son, and spirit ontologically in their being are equal. Equal in power, authority, glory, and who they are. It's one being, father, son, and Holy Spirit. Everyone got that understanding? I mean, like, at least conceptually in their mind, right? One being equal, not subordinate, equal. When we talk about uh, the economy of God, right, how the, it, God actually functions in these uh, persons, in this fashion, God and the, the, the Father, the Son is subordinate to the Father, and the Spirit is subordinate to the Father and the Son. In this manner, is that the Father sends the Son to the world. The Father and the Son send the Spirit to the world for a particular work. The Father sends the Son to redeem the world. <laughs> the Father and Son send and the Spirit, Spirit to transform his people, to convict, to comfort his people. In that manner, in that limited way, the son is subordinate to the father. Understand? But yet equal, not subordinate. I just want to play that out, like this, like help you give a grasp of understand Trinity. Otherwise, we get really dangerous ground and a lot of heresy if we think of subordination in all aspects of the son and the father. Everyone got that breathe? I want to tell you that because this is important to understand who God is, and the economy of God is played out in this passage quite clearly. So the economy of God is that the Father sends the Son. The Father has a plan, does work, and he gives the Son that work to do, and the Son obeys the Father. We could talk more about why that's important, but not now, not today. In John 5, 19, it says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. I mean, we could talk about why is that? Because they're one. They're one being. But notice that the son is saying, like, what the father does, then I do. I'm subordinate to them. What, only what he does, only what he wills is what I will and what I do. And so it's counting uh, equality, but also of subordination to that. It's important that the Son is not independent from the Father. They are ontologically one in the Trinity. The Son can only do what he sees the Father doing. And the Father shows. He reveals. This is, there's mercy to the Son. The Father reveals what he is doing to the, to the Son so the Son can do it. One God, unified in being and purpose, and yet in different roles in this particular thing. God has a plan, he has a work, and he sends the Son. It actually makes a little bit sense that we can understand that, although we're not like God, like the Father has a plan and work for all of us, and he wants us to obey that as well. Jesus has happens to model what obedience looks like for us as far as what humans ought to do for God. And then in this, right, it tells us this is what the Father does. The Father has a work, and he sends the Son to do the work, and then there's four, four statements, Four, four statements, if you can understand, four, F-O-R, statements in this 
passage that it kind of expounds on this father-son connection and work. Or we, the other way we can say four because statements. We could translate four as because. Or for this reason, or this is what it looks like. How the, how the economy of God plays out, or the economy of the Trinity plays out. And then verse 159b, the second half of that, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father works, repeats this again, the Son works. The Father does, the Son does. Makes sense. It's going to expound on that in a little bit more, right? This unified one of action in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son. This is the Father's work. And shows him all that he himself is doing. Think about this. I just want to think about this principle now. Whatever the Father does, whatever the Father's work, the Son's work is. The Father loves the Son. What will the Son do? Love. He will love the Father. And that actually is the foundation of what we understand God eternally. The very foundation of how we understand God is the Father and Son eternally loving each other. And then we get to it. So what also does it mean? The Father loves us. The Son loves us. This is what the Son does. He does what his Father tells him to do and what his Father does. He loves us. And it also says the Father shows the shows, the son sees it, what the father is doing, and the son acts on the plan of what the father wants to accomplish. And then there's this phrase, greater works than these. Greater works than healing a lame man will happen. Jesus in the temple, like, they're all proclaiming, you healed a lame man on the Sabbath day, listen. You thought that was bad, or you thought that was significant or powerful? Like, they're not even paying attention. He healed a lame man. Like, greater works than this will happen. Greater things than healing, having people walk. Because, he knows that's not important at the end of the days. What's important? It's going to go on. The next verse, the next four statement is going to tell you what the greater work is. And then why will we see, why will we see greater works? Why will these greater works be revealed that Jesus will show people so that they may marvel? They may treasure God, like Dostoevsky, that they will see that there's something more than the life that the Pharisees are offering, than the life that this interpretation of the law is offering, than the way that the world works, there's something more, and they may marvel, and they may treasure at it, they may awe, they may marvel at Christ, and they may treasure Christ. And then verse 21, for at as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Once again, same thing. Father does something, the Son does something. It's the same. This is ontological in their being, right? Equal, and yet there is an economy. We know how this plays out, right? It's not the Father at the cross, it's the Son at the cross. The economy of God, how this plays out. The Son raises dead and gives life to whom he chooses, to whom he wills. Those are, that's an important phrase. And John 5, 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he also granted the Son, the economy of God, also to have life in himself. The Father and the Son are equal in authority and sovereignty. We get this, and because he's saying this in the temple. Right, they, 
the Pharisees, they all they understand, there's one God, and Jesus is now declaring, listen, that one God that you know, I am that God. I am equal to our Father. And he says it in this way. Look at, we know that God is the only one that can give life. Listen, I am the one that gives life. And that is the greater work. I give life. I resurrect people. In 2 Kings 5, 7, it talks about this. And when the king of Israel read the letter and he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and to make alive? The, the point is the king understands, the common understanding of all people is that only God gives life. And here it is in the temple. Jesus says, I am the one. I am the one that gives life. The father gives life. I give life. Away. And I give life to whom I choose and to whom I will. The father and I are one. Resurrection is God's power alone. Life-giving is God's power alone, and therefore it's the Son's power. Jesus is equating himself with the Father ontologically in being, equal in authority and power. In the temple, you can, you can understand, right? If someone came in this, if I stood here and said, look it, I have power to resurrect people. I am equal to God. Your feathers would be ruffled a little bit, wouldn't they? You might get red in the face. You would be upset. It is understandable, their response. Because this is very confrontational. Jesus is laying out all on the line and telling people, this is who I am. You need to know it. And then verse 22, it goes on. Not just that he has the power of resurrection and life and equal to the Father. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, right there in the temple, as they're trying to persecute and plotting to kill him, he says, look it, it's not the father who judges people. He's given me all judgment, and you're trying to kill me? He's given me eternal judgment and power and authority. That's in my ballpark. That's my economy, right, of God. It's the son who makes that judgment. John 5, 27 and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is a reference to Daniel, which does not mean humanity. It actually means that he is divine. I won't go into all what Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel was talking about. But it is only that God, that Jesus is divine. He uses that term. And once again, understand, he, he puts out this co-equal. Well, who is able to judge? For them, for the Pharisees, for all the Jews. Who, who is their understanding is able to judge? Only God is able to judge. And Genesis 18, 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death and the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all, judge in capital J, the earth to do what is just? Like God, they understand God is the only one who is able to judge all. And here it is, Jesus says, I am the one that judges everything. I am the judge. In the economy of God, the Son is the judge. The reason the Father gives life and death, judgment to the Son, in verse 23, the reason why he, in the economy of the Trinity, that he gives it to the Son, that all may honor the Son. In verse 23, just as they honor the Father. He says it right here. The reason God has given me this judgment, so that you may honor me like you honor the Father. 
And whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Like, I know, he's like, I know you want to honor the father, but listen, you cannot honor God. You cannot honor the father unless you honor Jesus, period. That's what he's saying, period. You have to come to terms with who I am because I'm the judge. I'm the one that gives life. You do not value honor son. You do not honor and value the father and you do not honor and value God. Like in this world, there are many faiths. Right? Some faiths believe in one God. We don't all believe in the same God. It's quite clear from this passage. Jesus makes this quite clear. There aren't different paths to God. Jesus says, like, the only way to honor God, the only way to honor the Father, if you, if you believe in the Trinity, the only way to honor God the creator of all things, is to honor Jesus, to give him glory, to marvel him, to treasure him. Jesus is the path because he is God. I need a, Luke, I need your help up here. Luke, I need you to stand right there. We'll be socially distanced, right? Luke, come on, quick, 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 quick. All right, uh, who do you, you think is ready to preach today? My God, he's trying to upstage his dad. This is kind of rain. Get over here. <laughs> All right. Uh, Luke is going to be represent God, right? Nikolai will resent, represent humanity. Resent, you'll resent it too, <laughs> right? Brokenness, right? We can all identify, right? There, I see that in him, right? Brokenness, right? Sin, corruption, right? All that, right? But here it is. Jesus is the middle ground. Jesus is, is the Christ, this is a heavy Christian. I give you some heavy Trinit, Trinitarian theology. I'm giving you some heavy Christology, right? That Jesus is all God. They're equal, right? They are one ontologically in being. And yet, I think I, you know, this doesn't really logically make sense, but this is how it works. Jesus is also becomes takes on our humanity. He is fully human. He takes on our stuff on the cross. He actually takes all our sin, takes all humanity upon him. He is now the bridge, fully God and fully human. Only him. This makes a lot of sense. Because the problem is, this holy God can't be associated with this unholy humanity, you and I, this brokenness. Can't be, but he wants to be. And so the only way it works is the God who is holy and perfect takes on our humanity, he forgives us, but what he does is actually live the perfect life of obedience. Lives out the law perfectly. And the only reason he can do that is because he's fully God. Right? If he's just fully God and not human and lives perfectly, that doesn't solve the problem. But because he's fully human, he actually lives perfectly only because he's fully God. And so he's the bridge. He's the only way to access the Father. All right. Thank you. Good demonstration of God, Luke. The thing is, and this is what all the New Testament says, is that he unites us with him. That we are in union with him. Connected to him. It's not because of what we do, it's because of what he does. That's why we have access. That's why we're connected to the Father and to God. 
Philippians 2, 9, 11 says it this way. Therefore God, it's talking more, the Father has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the name of God, so that, this is the purpose, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. What does under earth mean? All the, all the dead people. All the condemned people, everyone will bow to Jesus. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, sovereign, ruler of all things, all the time, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow to Jesus. Every knee will confess that he is Lord and power. Why? It's to God the Father's glory. That's how God has designed it. There's no other way. This is Jesus saying this all in the temple. Then in the midst of Jesus being in this temple and proclaiming equality and oneness with God and his lordship, that he is sovereign, that he has all authority over life and death and everything, he breathes in good news. Because really he's condemning them at that moment. It's really a condemnation of what they're doing. And then he gives them good news in verse 24. It says, truly, truly, this is this amen, so be it. This is really emphasizing this is true. Listen up to this. I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes them who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He told you the greater work was resurrection, didn't he? A greater work was resurrection, and we're going to see later on in John actual physical resurrection in Lazarus. And then, of course, we see the physical resurrection of Jesus. But he's talking about a multitude of resurrections here. The resurrection that happens right now that you and I live in. This is the good news. Hearing and belief equal eternal life. That you hear the voice of God you hear the voice of the one who creates life. This is Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Whom Christ chooses, which he said earlier, to have life, he gives life to. Honoring uh, the words of Jesus, acknowledging who he's claiming to be because he's claiming it right now. Are you hearing this? Are you hearing this good news? Are you, do you hear my words that give life and do you believe in them? Therefore, if you believe in them, you have eternal life. You have been resurrected right now, he's saying in the temple. I don't know about you, but uh, I can listen to something and not hear it. Quite often. Usually my wife. <laughs> right? And then sometimes I'll, pre- like, I'll just stop for a second. What did you say? Right? Or I, 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 I say this to my kids like when I really want them. I, I say it, and I know like, you really haven't. And I'll repeat, did you hear me? What did I say? Because if they can repeat it, then I know they've heard it. And they're more likely to act upon that. That's a good parenting tip, right? I said, say, did you hear me? What did I say? Okay. Because it also helps clarification. That's just good communication one-on-one. But hey, uh, this is what Jesus said. Did you hear me? Did you hear what I said? And do you believe it? John 5, 29, he goes, right, because the the understanding for my kids is they can hear the words, but are they going to obey it? 
the obedience is really important, right? Like, do you, and this is for God, obedience is really important. You can hear that he, that Jesus is God, but are you going to obey it? That's what belief is, the obedience of faith. And John 5, 29, and you might have heard this at the end, like, wow, that sounds, this is, this is the problem where you take one verse and you like try to make a theological statement out of one verse and try to understand the whole context. And come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So if you just read that one verse, like, ha ha, it's what I do if I'm good or if I'm bad, whether I am resurrected or I'm condemned. That, yeah. Yes and no. You have to understand the whole context here, right? Obedience is a belief. Obedience is a belief. And, and it's not a works righteousness that he's talking about. I'll give you the context in a moment. But it's obedience to the words of Christ is not just belief that's spoken, it's lived out. It's lived out, and that is the fruit of the work of the Spirit. We want to talk about the economy of God. The work of the Spirit in us. In John 6, 29, Jesus answered John 6, 29, the next chapter. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent. It's not your work. Your belief or your ability to understand is actually not your work. It's God's work who gives it to you. God speaks it, and then he gives you the Holy Spirit to actually have the ability to work in you to actually believe and obey it. In John 3, 3, the, the couple chapters beforehand, Jesus says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The works are God, and they're carried out by God. Like they're true. Those that, that know Jesus, they're living the truth. And goes on in John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. You don't love Christ? You don't love Christ because you love the darkness. You're not like Dostoevsky who understands this is the treasure of all things. This is the pearl of great price. No judgment. The, the good news also in this passage that Jesus says is the judgment is not right now. Breathe. He's not condemning, condemning the Pharisees right now. Just breathe. you got an opportunity. The one who has all authority doesn't judge just yet. John 3, 17, 18 tells you why he doesn't need to judge just yet. For God did not send the Son, the economy of God, into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is in the work of saving people. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Right? Jesus doesn't come in the world where it's like, man, some people are not condemned and some people are. He comes in the world where people are already condemned. All of us. And like, i got to come in and save some people. <laughs> i got to come in and let them believe and see the truth and live in the light. It doesn't mean people, I just want to clarify another sermon, that people before Christ weren't saved. That's another sermon for another day. They were. People were saved all through Jesus as well. Now some more heavy theological lifting for us, right? Give you some Trinity, some Christology. Now I'm going to give you some eschatology talking about the end of times. Jesus judges, but it's not now. It's at the end of days. Well, everything at the end, and everyone stands before Jesus. And then he judges. We will all physically die unless Jesus comes back beforehand. 
We will all physically die. On the last day, Jesus resurrects our physical bodies. Everyone. Everyone who's died. Physical body is resurrected. And this weird story in Matthew, right? At, at the day of resurrection, of Jesus' resurrection, 500 people raised from graves. That's, that's kind of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen, right? Um, but he's saying, at the day, right, we all go into the graves. And you can be cremated. God can resurrect ashes as well, too. He has that ability. Breathe uh, on that. But Jesus had the authority and power of Jesus. Jesus resurrects people and judges people. Right there on that day. That's, that's what we believe. That we die and we, we, our soul goes in now. Our soul goes and be with the Father. But that, our salvation is not just a soul that resurrected. We actually have a physical body. And that we will reunite it on the last day with our physical body. Because we believe in Jesus. The point of this passage is, is the voice and the words of Jesus are powerful. They're powerful enough to generate spiritual life right now. Just as they are powerful enough to call the physical dead alive as well. And he'll demonstrate that ability momentarily in John. Where he'll call physically dead person from the grave and call them to life. As he can himself. But he has the power right now to generate spiritual life. Resurrected life right now. This is his power. Like he did with Dostoevsky. Gave him a new life right there in his hard labor camp. Just like God the Father created the world in six days with his voice. So can Jesus create with his words. New life. Everlasting life. The Father has life. Therefore the Son has life. This ontological understanding of the Trinity, one in being. The Father gives and sends the Son to redeem and resurrect us. That's the economic understanding of the Trinity. Father sends, Jesus redeems. Keep your economic understanding in the Trinity in just in that limited fashion. We don't go beyond that. Let me sum it up this way. Jesus in the temple on the Sabbath answers the Pharisees' critique about healing on the Sabbath by overtly and proclaiming loudly that he is God. You got a complaint that I'm, I'm, I'm healing on the Sabbath? Guess what? I'm the creator of all things. The Sabbath, this is my Sabbath. These laws that you think you're following, that's my character. You've misunderstood it. Let me explain it to you. I'm the one with the power. I'm the one with authority. I'm the one who is glorious. And John 5, 18 says... This is why we understand this clearly, why they would do this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Here clearly, the good news is not that he resurrects us. I mean, that is good news. It is good news, but it's not the best of the good news. The priceless treasure is not that he redeems and saves us. It is. I mean, I can hear Dostoevsky like, listen, if I could have Christ, I would be in Christ even if I wasn't resurrected. If I could have him for a moment, that would be worth everything. That's the thing, that he is precious, that he is the one that's treasured. This is the priceless truth, the priceless fact of the universe, that Jesus is our precious. I know that's a Gollum reference. And Lord of the Rings. But listen, that's how we should be. 
We should be so compelled to the, just as Gollum is, to the ring that we are to Jesus that we will do anything to be with Jesus because he's the precious one. He's the treasured one. The treasure of Joyce Gessie discovered in prison on the page of the New Testament is that Jesus is the precious one. That Jesus is Lord. I've said it before. That is the foundation of all the good news. That he is God, sovereign, ruler. That Jesus is the judge. Praise be to God that he is our judge. Praise be to God that he's the one that gives life. That he's the one that resurrects us. That he loves us. He loves us. I mean, understand, we got this big understanding of all this power and might that he has. But man, it becomes really simple. He loves and he adores you. Despite your brokenness, despite your hatred, he adores and loves you. And is willing to lay down his life for you. His, let his creative work, let his creative word speak life into us today. May you hear and believe that he is Lord. May your heart be resurrected today. He has that power. Hear and believe. May your heart be encouraged and drawn closest, closer to the priceless treasure that Jesus is our Lord and that Lord is our Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Father, loving Son, transforming Spirit, I give you thanks that this one God, this one being, and this, this revealed economy of God and how you work out your plan in, in us and through us and for us, Lord. Lord, help us. Help us to hear and believe. And not just to, to logically hear it in our words and, and to attain this knowledge, but to obey that understanding that you are Lord. Lord, Spirit, work in us. Work in us to believe. Work in us to obey and to live out your works. Help us to proclaim you, to marvel at you, to treasure you today, tomorrow, and the next day so that others may marvel at your glory. I give you praise for this body, for these people that you are working in, for the encouragement they are to me. To you all, glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.